Well, the title of my message today is Sin Won't Change God's Promises, But Don't Push Your Limits. Now, that's a house, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a family that is pushing their limits, wouldn't you say? That gives whole new meaning to beachfront property, right? That is an actual home. That is not a figment of, uh, of our imagination. That's an actual home that uh, is about to be destroyed. Pushing the limits, boy, but you know what? Sin, we're going to learn today in Romans, sin won't change any promises of God. Not one. The unconditional promises of God will remain unfazed despite our sin. But Paul's also going to say in Romans 3, but don't push your limits. Don't push your limits. You know, it's been a long time since we've been back in uh, the epistle to the Romans uh, it's been four or five weeks now, and so I was thinking, how do I recap uh, something that we've, we've had four or five weeks back, and we've just you know, had it this Christmas season, and, and, and we haven't even been thinking about Romans for a long time now. And normally I'll list you know, a dozen or so bullet points and, and uh, try to give you a recap that way, but, uh, but the Ugandan choir gave me an idea. You see, their creative juices got my creative juices flowing. And those of you that know me well know that I don't have creative juices. So bear with me as I try to be a little creative here in today's message. I thought we'd do a dramatic recap of where we are in Romans along with some dramatic retellings of our present study in Romans. And I've asked two fine men down to my left Doug Harrison, our youth pastor, and Will Fraker, our junior high director. These men are going to recap for you in dramatic fashion where we are in Romans. And so you're going to be listening to a dialogue here in, in different parts of my message this morning. A dialogue between Doug and Will. And Doug, Doug, raise your hand. Doug is going to play the part of the Apostle Paul in Romans. Doug is going to be speaking as if he were the Apostle Paul. And Will, Will, raise your hand. Will is going to be a first century skeptical Jewish person. He's going to be a first century Jew who listens to Paul's teaching and is listening to what Paul's saying, but isn't quite certain that what Paul has to say is true of the God of Israel. And so these two are going to recap much of Romans 2 for us even now. And so I invite you, to listen in to a dialogue as Paul and a first century skeptical Jew dialogue about theology. Listen in. Listen carefully. The Lord is judge of all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And God is not going to show favoritism when he judges. He will judge all mankind according to his truth and law. But in the end, only the doers of God's law will be justified. I agree, Paul. God's judgment is coming. That's why I'm so grateful that I'm a Jew who loves and obeys Moses' law. I know that God will surely not judge me, for I'm one of his chosen people. Now wait just a second. You who call yourself a Jew? You who claim to know and obey the law? I have some questions for you. Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever been unfaithful to your wife? Have you ever sinned and broken God's law even once in your life? Um... Well, may, maybe once. If you've sinned even one time, you've broken God's law. 
I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. I have rights. I have privileges. I am not a pagan Gentile. I am a good, law-abiding, circumcised Jew. Doesn't that count for something? You're right. You are a Jew. And so am I. We are all God's chosen ones. And we were given the task of taking the word of the Lord to all the nations. But look around. Do the nations praise, because, praise God because of Israel's great testimony? Um, well, of course they don't. They don't praise God because of us. They speak ill of the Lord God of Israel because they want nothing to do with a God whose people act like we do. Our Jewish ancestry, our traditions of circumcision, these things are meaningless when we fail to rightly obey and represent God as we were commissioned to do. And we have failed in this. Wait, wait, wait. Do you really mean that our ancestry and traditions are meaningless? Look, when God judges us, he's not going to care about our ethnicity or the religious rites we perform. The Lord is looking for a change of our hearts. He is looking for inward, spirit-led change. But don't the Jewish scribes teach that God will not judge a circumcised Jew? They do, but they're wrong. The Lord isn't impressed by legalistic obedience to, to, to traditions. But because these things impress you so much, try this on for size. God will consider anyone a circumcised Jew if they obey him from their heart. And I mean anyone, including Gentiles. You just heard Romans 2 in a nutshell. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of themes going on in Romans 2. A lot of things that were happening that, that Paul is really dialoguing with his uh, first century Jewish audience. A skeptical audience, mind you. An audience that's listening to Paul preach and is wondering, I'm not so sure that everything you're telling me is correct. Paul's made a number of points thus far in Romans 2. He said, number one, he said, look, all of mankind, we have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. And because we have a sin problem, God is going to come and He's going to judge all of mankind. Jew and Gentile. Both. But the Jews who were hearing this argument from Paul were thinking to themselves, now wait a minute. Well, yes, God's going to judge. Well, sh sure, God's going to judge. But, but we are Israelites. We are God's chosen people. We have the traditions. We have circumcision. We have, we have Passover. We, we have all these things that have become a part of our history and our culture. And these are God-ordained traditions. And the Jews in Romans 2, as they were uh, sparring back and forth, kind of shadow boxing with Paul, if you will, they were asking Paul, but, but don't, don't those... Don't those, doesn't that ancestry, doesn't that tradition, doesn't it mean something? Doesn't circumcision, doesn't it protect us from the judgment of God? That's what the scribes say. That's what the lawyers say. Paul makes it very clear that it is going to be the doers of the law who will be justified. You say, well, what? That's right. According to Romans 2, verse 6, According to Romans 2, verse 13, emphasized again and again, God will judge by works and only the doers of the law will be justified. You say, well, how can that be, Neil? I, I, thought, that, I thought that salvation was by faith and not by works. 
Well, that's true. That's true. But in fact, Paul was trying to strategically arrange an argument for his Jewish audience. He was trying to set up a situation so that when they looked upon that situation, they realized, but wait a minute, that can't be done. And so when Paul says only the doers of the law will be justified in Romans 2.6, he means for his audience to realize, but no one can do that. Preeminent New Testament scholar Doug Moo says this about doing the law. He says that Paul agreed with the Jewish belief that justification could, in theory, be secured through works of the law. Where Paul disagreed with Judaism was in his belief that the power of sin prevents any person from actually achieving justification in this manner. Oh, God will judge by works, Paul says. And of course, the Jews believe that, they're, uh, that they already had good works by virtue of the law and circumcision. But God's judgments, Paul says, are much higher than you realize, my fellow Israelites. Jews are not rendered innocent by their ethnicity or their heritage or their traditions. No, God requires a perfectly righteous response. Flawless obedience to the law. He was getting the first century audience to realize right then and there, that flawless obedience, that perfectly doing the law was not possible. Paul did this because he knew in his heart that when people grasp this concept, when people come to realize that they cannot do the law perfectly, that they cannot perform God's law perfectly, that they cannot achieve the standards of a holy God, Paul used this argument strategically to get them to realize that doing the law is impossible. And fewer truths are more important than that one. For with it comes a heart that is ready and open to receive a righteousness that is not their own. A righteousness that only comes by faith in the perfectly righteous One, Jesus Christ. How would God judge according to Romans 2? If you did the law or not. But I can't do the law exactly. That's why you must put your faith and trust in the One who did perfectly fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, in in this dialogue in Romans 2 between Paul and his Jewish brethren, Paul was being a little bit harsh on his Jewish countrymen. We always kind of expect more of our family, don't we? I always expect more of my kids than someone else's or more more of my spouse than someone else's. We, We always, when it's our own people, we always expect more of them. But it makes sense that the Jews who were listening to Paul preach might have wondered if Paul even cared about their ancestry even cared about their traditions anymore. Listen in as the conversation continues in Romans chapter 3. The Jewish scribes teach us that God won't judge the circumcised Jew, right? They do, but they're wrong. The Lord is not impressed by legalistic obedience to traditions. But because these things impress you so much, try this on for size. God will consider anyone a circumcised Jew if they obey him from their heart. And I mean anyone, including Gentiles. 
What? I'm not sure I believe that. But okay, let's assume you're telling me the truth. Let's assume that an obedient Gentile will be considered like a circumcised Jew in the eyes of God. Then answer me this. What advantage is there to being Jewish? Why should we even care about our Jewish ancestry or traditions? Look, I'm not suggesting that our Jewish heritage and traditions are worthless. I'm simply saying that obedience of the heart is more important than obedience to external traditions. Okay, but if that is true, then does my Jewish ancestry mean anything anymore? Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now, to be clear, Paul is writing Romans 3, verse 1. But he's writing it from the perspective of a skeptical Jewish onlooker. He's writing it from the perspective of Will here, who is reading this dramatic reading. So Paul is shadowboxing, if you will. He's dialoguing with a potential Jewish argument, a Jewish objection against his teaching. And he says this. What The, the objector says this. Paul, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? If in fact, you know, these things, if in fact a Gentile of all people who obeys from the heart can be reckoned like a circumcised Jew, then why bother being Jewish anymore, Paul? What's the use of circumcision? What's the use of our ancestry? What's the use of our traditions, Paul? Answer me that. Well, this was a very natural reaction for the Jews to have to Paul's teaching. This is a very natural reaction. They were wondering, Paul, are you, just, are you just throwing us under the bus here? Are you just throwing away 2,000 years of our history? What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? Does our heritage mean anything anymore? If Gentiles can be reckoned as a circumcised Jew, is there any point to being Jewish anymore? How would Paul respond to this question? Listen in as Paul responds. I'm not suggesting that our Jewish heritage and traditions are worthless. I'm simply saying that obedience of the heart is more important than obedience to external traditions. Okay, but if that's true, then does, the Jewish, does my Jewish ancestry mean anything anymore? Well, of course it does. Our Jewish ancestry is very important and valuable. We were the ones to whom God first entrusted His revelation. We were the first to know God's law. We are the recipients of His many covenant provinces. God shows us to declare His truth to the whole world. Well, of course our Jewish ancestry matters. Well, I think, I think we can agree here, Paul. God did choose us to be the first to know and understand Him. And He has made tremendous promises to us. And He did entrust us with the responsibility to take His teaching to the world. Exactly. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision, Paul? Paul's answer. Much in every way is the advantage. Chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Paul is not interested, as I said, in throwing his countrymen under the bus and saying, let's get rid of our Jewish ethnicity and our heritage. Not at all. Instead, Paul reinforces their Jewish roots in Romans 3, verse 2. He says, remember, you have God's oracles. You have His revelation. You have His covenants. We, the Jews, we were the first 
to receive these things. We were the first to hear from God. The first to know God's law. The first to be able to understand who He is. Paul, in a sense, in verse 2, he's reminding them of what they were designed for. The Jewish people were designed to be the first recipients of the knowledge of God. Equally so, they were designed to take that revelation, to take those oracles, to take those covenants, and to take those promises and to give them to you and me. And to show us the way. To say, this is how you follow God. This is how you know God. This is who God is. This is God's law. Ah, but Paul's been reminding them all along, hasn't he, in Romans 2, that they're not doing that, are they? Paul's been reminding his fellow countrymen in Romans 1 and 2 and now in chapter 3 that they are failing their God-given duty. Their duty to take the revelation of God to the ends of the earth. Now, in truth, the Jews weren't so sure about their failure. They were listening to Paul talk about, hey, you're, you're failing. You're not rightly representing God to the nations. You're not rightly taking God's oracles to the nations. And they were saying, I don't know if we're failing. I'm not so sure that we're, that we're failing, Paul. But, but just in case you're right, Paul, just in case you're right, well, a haunting question kind of arises, don't you think? Listen in to the haunting question that arises. Well, I think we can agree here, Paul. God did choose us to be the first to know and understand Him. And He has made His tremendous promises to us. And He did entrust us with the responsibility to take His teaching to the world. Exactly. But what if you've, what if you've been teaching about me and the rest of Israel is true, then... I'm not so sure that these things are advantageous to us anymore. Well, why is that? Well, you said yourself that the Jewish people, by and large, have failed to obey God. You said that we have failed to rightly represent God to the world. Yes. Well, if that's true, if we have failed God, then I suppose we have no hope then, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 3. For what if some did not believe, Paul? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? This is the objector speaking. If Paul was right, if the Jews had largely failed God and failed in their mission to take the oracles of God to the ends of the earth, well, what would become of them? Would God abandon them? Would He renege on His promises to them? You know, when we think of failure, when we, when we, uh, anytime we fail at anything, there, there are significant consequences, right? If we, if we fail a, a grade in high school, we have to repeat that grade. If we, uh, if we fail a, a test, we gotta retake that test. And things go back and, and things get broken and things get messy when failure comes into our lives. And the Jews, well, they were, they weren't sure that they were failing, but if Paul was right, if they were failing in their mission to take the revelation of God to the end of the earth, then they wondered what would be their consequence? What would God do to them? Would, well, they weren't believing. They weren't obeying. They weren't, they weren't, would, would, 
with their unbelief and with their apathy, would these kinds of things cause the faithful promises of God to cease? Paul has a surprising answer. Listen in. Look, Paul, you said yourself that the Jewish people, by and large, have failed to obey God. You said that we have failed to rightly represent God to the world. Yes. Well, if that's true, if we've failed God, then I suppose we have no hope then, right? Well, it is true that many of us have failed to be good ambassadors of the Lord. And some of our people don't even believe God anymore. But will the unbelief of some make the promises of God void? Certainly not. People may lie and betray promises, but God is always true to his word. The psalmist says that the Lord is justified by his words, that his words always prove true when they are judged. Are you telling me that even though we failed God, he promises to remain unfazed? I know it may be hard for you to believe, but the Lord's promises to Israel remain in full despite Israel's unbelief and sin. You might say that God's righteousness is magnified all the more when mankind sins against him. How so? Well, it's simple. The sin of mankind can never negate an unconditional promise of God. Never? Never. Ever. Ever. (laughs) Never ever? Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, let me get this straight. You're saying that God's righteousness is magnified all the more when mankind sins? You're saying that our sin can never negate the promises of God. That's right. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. What if some didn't believe, Paul? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God void without effect? Will the promises of God be gone? Certainly not, Paul says. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You know, men and women, we we break promises. I've broken promises. You've broken promises. God doesn't break promises. He never breaks them. He never, ever reneges on an unconditional promise that He has made. It will never happen. Jesus said in John 5.24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears My word And believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Unconditional promise of God. Never to be revoked. And here we're listening in on a conversation between Paul and the Jews about unconditional promises never to be revoked. Namely, that God still loved and cared for His chosen people Israel. That there was still a place for them in the future. And we're going to read about that as we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11 and later on in our studies. Paul's saying quite clearly, look, it doesn't matter if some of the Jews don't believe anymore. It doesn't matter if they failed on their mission. Although those things are, are, are awful and terrible sins, sins never negate the unconditional promises of God. Never negate them. Now, while that is comforting to know that God never 
changes or goes back on his promises, it, there's also a measure of danger in knowing that. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an aspect in the human psyche that, that, that starts to play with that idea that well, God will never change His promises. In some cases, uh, knowledge of God's undying faithfulness can actually breed a sense of entitlement in men and women. And let me show you what I mean by this sense of entitlement. Listen in to the conversation. Okay, let me get this straight. You're saying that God's righteousness is magnified all the more when mankind sins? You're saying that our sin can never negate the promises of God? That's right. Well, if that's the case, then why does God so wrathfully punish his sinners? If... If our sin helps to magnify God's righteousness, why does He still judge us? If our sin is bringing more glory to God, then it just doesn't seem fair for God to punish us, right? Well, of course it's fair for God to punish sinners. You know the Scriptures. You know that the law and the prophets teach that God will judge this world. Who are we kidding? Our own countrymen are always asking God to judge our Gentile neighbors, aren't they? Well, yes. If you expect the Lord to judge their sin, why shouldn't you expect Him to judge yours? He is the Lord. He is the Creator and Judge of all the world. And He is just when He judges and disciplines mankind for their sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Paul, but, but if our unrighteousness, if our sin, if our unbelief, if our failure, if our disobedience, Paul, if these things demonstrate the righteousness of God, well, what about this? Isn't God unjust to inflict wrath? We're just speaking like a man here, just, just speaking like an average Joe, posing an argument. Isn't it unjust of God to inflict wrath when our sin is making Him look good. It's making His righteousness look good. Paul says, certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? What's taking place here from the objector standpoint, from the skeptic standpoint, is he's saying, hey, don't the ends justify the means, Paul? If you're saying that God will never change His promise, never change His, his mind about these unconditional promises... And if you're saying that, that when I sin and He proves more true to His promise, that that magnifies His glory, well then, Paul, doesn't it make sense that I should sin more so that God can be more magnified? Don't the ends justify the means? Paul puts a quick stop to such erroneous teaching and thinking. He says, look, don't twist doctrine to justify licentious behavior. Don't use the Scriptures and turn them in such a way so that you can do whatever it is you're hoping to do. It's interesting because later on in Romans, chapters 14 and 15, Paul's going to argue that we should show great discretion. Great discretion in our conduct so that we don't cause anyone to sin. We should never use our liberty in Christ as a vehicle for reckless behavior. But sadly, some people do twist the Word 
to justify their sinful conduct. We even see a glimpse of this abuse right here in Romans 3. Take a listen. If you expect the Lord to judge the Gentile sin, why shouldn't you expect Him to judge yours? He is the Lord. He is the creator and judge of the world. And He is just when He judges and disciplines mankind for their sin. Well, I hear what you're saying, Paul. But I think we've been making some good points here, too. I still can't believe God would ever judge me, one of His own chosen people. Do I sin? Well, sure. Occasionally. But so what? You yourself said that my sin makes God look good, for it shows how faithful He is to His promises. Well, if that's true, why should He ever judge me for my sin? Now, wait a second. Hey, come to think of it, I should uh, keep on sinning. So God's righteousness is magnified all the more. Why not do evil that the good may come? Why not do evil that good may come? Isn't that what you teach, Paul? If you say that God's grace and glory are magnified when men sin, then aren't you just encouraging us to sin wildly? Hey, Will, read that last line one more time, that whole paragraph. One more time, nice and loud. Hey, come to think of it, I should just keep on sinning so God's righteousness is magnified all the more. Why not do evil that good may come? Isn't that what Paul, isn't that what you teach, Paul? If you say that God's grace and glory are magnified when men sin, when men sin, then aren't you just encouraging us to sin wildly? Romans chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. For if the truth of God, Paul... If the truth of God and the glory of God and the righteousness of God, if it's increased because of my lies and sins, if it's increased to God's glory, why am I still judged as a sinner, Paul? Answer me that. And why not? Why shouldn't I just say, let's do evil, that good may come? Isn't that what you teach, Paul? Notice carefully uh, the impression, the impression that some receive from hearing Paul's teaching. The impression that Paul's skeptical Jewish audience gets, however wrong that impression might be, is that Paul's doctrine of God's faithfulness, of His undying faithfulness, well, it's... It's too easy to take advantage of. That's their impression. Interestingly enough, that's the same impression his skeptical Jewish audience gets when we come to Romans 6, and Paul's talking about the doctrine of God's grace, and they ask the question, well, if God's grace is so limitless, Paul, then why don't we just sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, verse 2. These impressions that happen both here in Romans 3 and again in Romans 6, verse 2 are happening time and time again in Paul's ministry. You'll see them all throughout the epistles. Impressions that say, well, Paul, if, God, if you're saying God's faithfulness is totally undying, if you're saying God's grace is totally limitless, then why don't we just take advantage of it? Why don't we just sin wildly, in fact? 
I find it somewhat comforting to know that these are the same accusations that this church receives when we speak of the undying faithfulness of God and the limitless nature of His grace. It tells me when we receive these accusations, however false that they are, it tells me that, well, we must be teaching like the Apostle Paul. Right? Well, we must be saying something right. Because I sure, you know, not a month goes by, not a month goes by before I hear someone come in and say, well, come on now, Neil, you're, the church's emphasis on grace and on the freeness of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, it's too easy. It's too easy. Some say that there's just too much emphasis on the grace of Christ here at Coast. And, and, and that breeds a, a license to sin among those who believe that. Well, if that be true, then by all means, by all means, please, please point out the egregious sinners in our midst. If that be true, if it be true that the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ is just too easy to take advantage of, then please, by all means, point out the carnal Christians that are in our midst who should exist if, in fact, limitless grace causes a license to sin. Well, now wait. I'm not sure we have too many of those in our midst. And why not? Why doesn't a church that emphasizes the grace, the limitless grace of God, have a sanctuary filled with carnal Christians? Well, Paul's already answered that question. He did so back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He said, Do you not know that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance? It is the grace of God that leads us to repentance. And when we are focused on the limitless grace of God, it is then and only then that we recognize what it means to have a holy and repentant kind of lifestyle. Holiness and righteousness are motivated by thankfulness for who God is and what He has done. They are not motivated by legalism. When our eyes are on Christ and the cross and of the great sacrifice He gave, we will become holy and repentant people. But the accusations against Paul, you heard them here. Paul, you're making it too easy. You're making it too easy to take advantage of. Why don't I just sin, Paul? Paul was being wrongly accused of this. Wrongly accused of making it too easy for mankind to abuse the faithfulness and grace of God. But this accusation, I tell you plainly, it was not grounded in reality. Paul unashamedly preached the doctrines of God's undying faithfulness and limitless grace, but he never believed, know this, Paul never believed that the limitless grace of God encouraged a license to sin. He never believed that. Listen in as Paul concludes the conversation. Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't I just keep on sinning so God's righteousness can be magnified all the more? Why not do evil that good may come? Isn't that what you teach, Paul? If you say that God's grace and glory are magnified when men sin, then aren't you just encouraging us to sin wildly? Absolutely not. 
That is absolutely not what I teach. And those who suggest that I encourage others to sin are lying and misrepresenting my teaching. How? Is God's righteousness magnified when men sin? You bet it is. It proves just how committed He is to His promises to us. It proves that even when we sin, He still remains true to His word. Well, then shouldn't we all sin all the more that grace may abound? No. God's faithfulness to us is not grounds for us to be unfaithful to Him. We should never push the limits of God's faithfulness. We should never sin deliberately just to see how great God's patience is towards us. Sin is always wrong, and God will rightly judge those who teach others to sin or who misrepresent my teaching with this foolish doctrine. Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to His glory, Paul, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Paul pipes in as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation, those who say this about our teaching, Paul says, is just. Paul rejected. He rejected the idea that his teaching on God's undying faithfulness and limitless grace encouraged a license to sin. In fact, Paul believed just the opposite. Paul maintained that the goodness of God The grace of God is precisely what leads a person to repentance and holiness. The more we grasp our sinfulness, the more we grasp the extent of the cross of Christ, the more we will come to appreciate just how much God has done for us. I want to leave us this morning with one simple truth and one simple challenge. The truth is this. No sin you commit will change God's unconditional promises to you. No sin you commit will change His promises to you. But the challenge is this. Don't abuse the limitless nature of God's faithfulness and grace. Don't push your limits. Instead, let the goodness of God lead you to repentance and to holiness. Instead, may it spur you on to love and good deeds. Remember, sin won't change God's promises, but don't push your limits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this uh, precious passage in Romans, Lord. We thank You for just the uniqueness of the, the, the dialogue between Paul and his audience. Lord, we know that the Apostle Paul was was in a fight a theological fight over the faithfulness and grace of God and that he had antagonists and skeptics all around him. But Lord, Your Spirit guided him as he wrote. And the accusations that flew his way and that fly our way as a church, we know they're not grounded in reality. And Lord, we hold it up as a banner of, of, of honor that the same accusations that plagued the Apostle Paul are also the same accusations that are often hurled at our view of Your amazing grace. God, let Your goodness be our focus. Let the cross of Christ be our focus. For we know that when it is, we will not push the limits, but we will respond 
in thankfulness and gratefulness for who You are and what You've done for us and that we will respond with a repentant and holy heart. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.